Hello everyone, my name is Victor Wooten. I'm a musician and a human being. Join us with Dov on Curiosity Bites, because this is a good one. We're talking about everything, music, life, gender, nationality, culture. It won't all be comfortable, but it's all worth listening to. Don't miss this one. Stay tuned. Welcome back. My name is Dov Barron. I'm the host here at Curiosity Bites. And if you'd like to join in the conversation that we're having, go on over to Facebook and join our Facebook group on Curiosity Bites. Uh, our co-sponsor for this particular episode is the theawesomemusicproject.com, where it's connecting music, science, and story to enhance mental health. You can find out more about the Awesome Music Project and the AMP Foundation at theawesomemusicproject.com. So continuing our conversation here with five-time Grammy Award-winning Victor Wooten, um, who has so much more to him than just that. Uh, not that that's in any way small, uh, but we were talking about uh, growing up, being on tour, uh, being discovered, <laughs> discovered five times. I think his mother discovered him initially, but then it was discovered. <laughs> Uh, professionally five times, as were the, the, the rest of his brothers who were all musicians. Um, and we were talking about that sort of discovery and, and the how those things impact us and what happens to us. One of the things I wanted to, to tell you, I don't know if you know, but uh, you know, of course you don't know, but um, <clears throat> there is a particular... Uh, story that is relate in a way relates to you in 1977 on the day my daughter was born a stevie wonder song was number one in the uk uh a song that a mu our mutual friend darren told me to go listen to you play mm. and the song is isn't she lovely it's the day my daughter was born that song was number one by stevie wonder and so darren was i was telling you this story to darren he goes oh have you heard victor play it i go no and then I went and heard it and like, wow. And then, you know, and it's just bass. And when I say just bass, I don't mean it's just bass. I mean, it's only bass. It's only bass, there's nothing else. And then I, then I was like, okay, well, let me see what else. And then Superstition, which is one of my all time favorite songs, like, oh my God, man. I mean, the things you do with that bass guitar, like <laughs> weird. Like, and I talked to Darren about that and he goes, oh yeah. He goes, he does things with a bass guitar that we all like, huh? What is he doing? <laughs> and he said, you know, and I watched an interview with you with another bassist who was talking to you, an English lad, and he was the same thing. He goes, he was watching you and going, what the hell is he doing with his thumb? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So was this, was this, was there a, a major influence on you uh, with bass? I mean, obviously your brother put you into it, but you know, as things went along, because uh, before Seinfeld, uh, Seinfeld's theme music, most people didn't even recognize the bass. Most people are not music fans, didn't recognize the bass sounds. By the way, if you don't know a bass sound, go listen to the Seinfeld theme music, and it's a bass, what it is. Keyboard and, bass. And in fact, close, close, keyboard bass, but close enough. A keyboard bass, yeah, but it's, you know, and then you've got, um, for me, I think when I really sort of got fully aware of it um, was when uh, music took a turn. Uh, 
um, and it became bass-driven music. It rose to popularity accompanied by violins um, in 1977, 19, no, 1978 uh, with Nile Rodgers and bassist Bernard Edwards or Bernard Edwards uh, in the, with the band Chic and that very famous bass line in Freak, like, which is just amazing. Like I so love though, I love Chic, I love Nile Rodgers all their music is there a is there was there a big bass influence for you outside of your brother totally totally so again i, I hate to keep coming back to race but I, I i it might be safer to call it culture sure in the black culture we were very aware of the bass because that's what we danced to right in our culture we're we're dancing to the bass and the drums the drum in other yeah, cultures exactly. they may be listening to the melody, the guitar, the solo, things like that. But or the violin us, or the harpsichord, depending on where you are in time, yeah. And my but Africa has bass, it has drums, yeah. Yes, that's my theory is that it comes back to the rhythms mm -hmm. that, that were basically stolen from our African culture when it came to the US. We weren't allowed to play those drums anymore because they knew that, that, that our, our our ancestors could talk through it. So what ended up happening, and this is all my theory, is that blacks took whatever they picked up and put rhythm in it. Even the banjo, which is an African instrument, right? Is it really? So, oh yeah, totally. I did not know that. Oh yeah. I would yeah. never put the banjo as African music because I've got it as a very white Southern ding, 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 ding. Right. But it's an African. That's where, that's where it kind of is now. Yes, of course. But even before that, you know, uh, banjo was in jazz until they invented the guitar. Ah. Then the banjo players started playing guitar. Mm. The guitar could be plugged in and it could get louder. But banjo right. had so much attack. But anyway, uh, you mentioned Bela Fleck and the Flecktones. Bela Fleck, who I work with for over 30 years, is a banjo player. Ah. A white guy growing up in New York fell in love with the banjo. But not long ago, he went back to Africa, did some research on the history, played with a lot of those musicians, and he made a great documentary called Throw Down Your Heart, which is worth watching. Mm. But yeah, a lot of people don't know uh, that the banjo is an African instrument, yes. So when our instruments were taken, when we got over here to... to um, to European instruments, I believe we just started putting rhythm into it. Mm. But because in the beginning there were mostly just drums back in Africa, that's what that's what our culture is used to dancing to, the rhythm, the beat. Yes. So there were, Bernard Edwards is definitely one of the great uh, bassists, but there were so many songs, you know, oh, like cool. For the Love of Money, the Ohio Players, Yes. Um, you know, thank you for letting me be myself with Larry Graham, the first oh guy my God, using yeah. this thumb. Thank you for letting me yes. be myself. <laughs> All based around the bass part. Um, there's, there's so many different great basses growing up, and my brothers were helping me become aware of them. And, and of course, when I was first starting to play, I didn't care who the bass, what the bass player's name was. I no. just had to learn the part. Reggie would teach me the part. We'd go play the gig. And whenever I played that part, people danced. And I was like, whoa, this is kind of cool. 
you know? And so that was really my first awareness of it. Even though I was still young in age, as I was getting older as a musician, and I'm in elementary school now, because I was out playing before I even started school. I was that lucky. Wow. But now when I'm get, we moved to California when I start third grade. Now we're talking 73. Mm-hmm. It's taking on a whole different thing, right? The popularity of James Brown. I got to see James Brown in 71 and 72 in the height uh, of his thing. Now we moved to California, get into the 70s, 80s, disco, all sorts of things. But it's still, for even for disco, um, it was still, for us anyway, black people, based upon the rhythm. Mm-hmm. Right. And keyboard bass started coming in and that eventually led to things like Seinfeld, where the world on a major show started hearing uh, basically what black people were already listening to, which was bass. Yes. And I was lucky enough to get to play that instrument. So I was very, very aware. But when I started becoming aware of people's names, one was Larry Graham, yes. who was the first to come out playing with his thumb. There was another guy named Willie Weeks who played with uh, Donny Hathaway. Right. And my aunt, when I was a kid, said, boy, you got to listen to this. And there was a, a live record, Donny Hathaway Live, where Willie Weeks took a solo on the last song, Everything is Everything. And, uh, and it just blew me away. So I learned it was the first solo I can remember ever learning. But I was aware of the bass parts, but it took me to get quite a bit older to start to to associate names, James Jamerson, Chuck Rainey, Duck Dunn, Carol Kay, to start, you know, Paul McCartney even, to mm. start associating names to the bass lines that I had heard and learned. Do you, you know, I mean, outside of the cultural influence, is there is there any uh, African musicians that stand out for you because you know I used to collect African music and I loved I mean I mean even like Johnny Clegg sure. a lot of people don't know but Johnny Clegg was actually a Jewish South African who played with an all-black band yeah <clears throat> he, I think he died recently too was amazing I had all of his albums uh, and he and he appeared in Soweto with uh, with Peter Gabriel uh, on the on that tour I mean you know those were amazing was I, were you influenced by a lot of that? Yeah, I mean, there was no, there was no way not to be, because right. a lot of where the music we were hearing, even though we called it R and B and soul, was mm-hmm. African based. Sure. But then we were lucky when some pe- some music really from Africa got to infiltrate, like uh, artists like Hugh Masekela, and people like that. But as a young kid, I wasn't thinking, oh, they're from Africa. It was just music. Yeah, exactly, just music. You know, it was just music. And then, you know, so now as I got older and again, I started being able to associate names and get a little bit smarter and, and a little bit more curious, I started hearing about more things. And even like later years, Paul Simon. Yes. His Graceland record. Yeah. You know, Paul Simon got a lot of credit. But believe it or not, there were a lot of people that were upset about that record. Because there was a lot of people that said, hey, women, here's another white guy exploiting black music. Because Paul Simon was smart. He went over there and took what was natural, what they, these South African musicians, Bikiti Kumalo and all these guys, Ray Fury on guitar, they could, they did this stuff in their sleep. Sure. Paul Simon took it 
orchestrated it, put his lyrics on it, and brought it back to America. We never heard this before. Mm-hmm. Paul Simon is a genius. And he is. I love Paul Simon. True. But this is just what they do in South Africa. It's just their music with his lyrics. And I love it. Don't get me wrong. No. I love it. But it also helped bring awareness to to our country of what's going on in South Africa. And so now, like the bass player, Bikiti Kumala, I'm very good friends with him. He lives in the U.S. now. He gets a lot of work. He was working at a, like a, a car dealership, a car shop or something, something really crazy. And he got a note that some European guy named Paul Simon was looking for him. He thought he was going to get arrested. He thought he had gotten in trouble. And they said, no, bring your bass. So he got this old cheap bass that he somebody had, and he went over there and played that whole record. And it's a hit, you know. So there have been people, and, and in many cases, it, it takes Europeans to help black artists to make it to the next level, if you want to call it, to, to raise that awareness. That's- fortunately, in our young day, I'll just say this and I'll stop. Fortunately, in our young day of the 70s, Mm-hmm. Radio would play whatever was good. Yeah, yeah. Pop, the pop, the pop station played what was popular from any genre. It was one of the reasons that um, when people say to me, you know, because I grew up in the UK till I was twenty, uh, and uh, so I've been gone a very long time. But people say to me, "Do you miss anything?" And I, one of the things I will say is, "I miss the music." And people say, "Why?" And I said, "Because in England there was always pop stations," and they go. You miss the pop stations, but they're thinking of pop music. Right. And, and the pop stations played whatever was popular. So we'd get Max Bygraves, who was a crooner, and then we'd get the Sex Pistols next to each other. You know, and then, then, you, then you'd have ska bands like Madness, you know, and, you know, and yeah. followed by some reggae, followed by, you know, some uh, heavy metal. On the same it didn't matter. On the same but, station. On the yeah. same station. And I just, you know, I, personally, I love that. You know, my wife for, for my uh, 50th, ber- 60th birthday did a thing and she said, you know, um, we, she built eight hours of music on a Spotify playlist, you know, because and she says, because nobody could ever come up with the amount of the types of music you like. And there's not only types, but songs that most people have forgotten that were big in the 70s for me that, you know, I just loved. And there's some African stuff in there. There's a lot of different stuff. I mean, there's the Bulgarian Women's Choir, which is like, oh, mind-blowing harmonics, yeah. right? It's like, oh, my God, that's so damn good. Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, I'm playing an African song because I really love that. So the, all of that is, is I mean, I, I honestly don't know what the world would be without music. I, 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 I do see it as this incredible language, but you took it somewhere else. And, and I want to, I want to start moving into that direction, which is you have become, well, first of all, you have this title, which is uh, one of the most fearless musicians on the planet. That in and of itself is, is a, is a pretty high accolade to live with. And then you've moved into this, other world, which is nature-based education. You have partnered with uh, wilderness educator Richard Cleveland, who's been on this show. Um, 
in the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. Um, and you talk about your relationship with nature and the relationship between nature and music. Does that tie into being this labeled uh, most fearless musician on the planet? T talk to us a bit about that. Absolutely. That, that allows me to, to go places that others won't. Okay. Um, and the thing about nature, for one, if you find a, a musician, or let me put it this way. Let's say we go and we're going to go shoot some archery for fun. Mm -hmm. and, and you've never done it, but you pick up the bow and boom, you just hit the target. Mm -hmm. Oh, try that again. Boom, target. Oh, do that one more time. Boom, target. Whoa. You know what? Whoever your teachers, they're going to say, man, Dov, you're a natural. Right. Right. So what does that really mean, a natural? What it means is that you are like nature. All right. Nature doesn't have to try, right? Natural a beaver doesn't -like practice. Nature. Yes. Okay. Beaver doesn't take lessons to learn to build a dam or, or chew down trees. They don't have to go practice. A, a squirrel just knows how to build a nest, mm -hmm. right? Birds just sing, not because they have a degree or they want Grammys. They just sing because they, <laughs> they, you know, <laughs> nature is the most natural thing on the planet. And what we don't realize is that's what we are all trying to become like nature, natural. Like, you know, you, maybe you have to practice interviews and questioning or whatever my job is. I practice so that I can become natural at it, mm -hmm. but at least in music, the way the curriculum works is they teach us in the most unnatural way. They mm -hmm. teach you something and they go say, sit in a room and practice it over and over. Right? When you're learning your first language, you're not told to go practice in a room. You learn a word and they're told you're told to use it. Right? The natural yeah, thing. Yeah, I mean, nobody's, when you're a kid, you don't practice language. No. You're around your parents and you just, you do it, right? You do it. Right. And you're never told you're a beginner. You're never treated as a beginner. You're not told to only talk to other beginners, right? You're jamming in language as your first language. You're jamming with the pros. You're never corrected. Okay. You can be 10 year old calling a blanket, a blankie. And no one corrects you uh, guaranteed. If you're a 10 calling it a blankie, your parents are calling it a blankie too. No, here's your blankie. Right? So you're never corrected. You're never really taught. You're never told to practice. You're never told you're a beginner and you're never made to only speak to other beginners. So how can you get good at talking within a few short years? The answer is quickly <laughs> because you maintain your naturalness, right? No one's ever forced you out of being who you are. No one ever told you what words to learn first, right? So we as parents are your example, but it's your pathway. It's your choice. Mm. You choose what you want to learn. If you want more milk, you'll learn more milk first. You know, right. it's up to you. So that's a natural environment. But in many cases, if not most, and if not all, once it becomes a curriculum, it becomes about my curriculum. Yes. It's about so what it's I ego do. driven. Yeah. Whether we wow. know it or not, it's about what I teach. It's not about how you best learn. All right. 
It's about my curriculum, and you don't get a good grade unless you master my curriculum, right? So for me, music, for one, was never taught to me that way. I learned it in the same way and at the same time, fortunately, as I was learning to speak English. Right. What people don't realize is that when my mom had a thing where, okay, I told you that Reggie was born and in less than a year, Roy was born. Yes. My mom will tell you, when Roy was born, Reggie was already potty trained. At a year? Less than a year. Wow. Yeah. She says, as soon as a baby can sit up by themselves, you're potty training. She says, as a parent, you know their bowel movements better than they do. You know mm -hmm. when it's time to go, you sit them on the potty, you don't let them up until they do something. And they can drop one drop, but if they do, you throw a party. Right. Make them know that that's so good, right? Yeah. My mom also said she only had, I think it was 12 or seven or either 12 cloth diapers. It was all she had. She didn't have enough diapers for two babies. No. So you, she had to you go through 12 diapers in a day with one baby. Right. <laughs> so she had the potty and they were cloth, not the throwaway ones. You yeah. wash them, hand wash them. Yeah. So she had to do what she had to do necessity so w i was learning to play uh at the same time the other thing is as me as a baby when i learned to sit up by myself my brothers are already jamming around the house now i get a little toy plastic toy guitar to hold mm -hmm. while they're jamming mm -hmm. right so i'm learning to feel the music yes while holding an instrument it was not about put your finger here, do this technique, just hold it and jam. Right. So I start playing very early. By the time I could actually, by the time I could actually, you know, hold and, and figure out where to put my finger, Reggie would show me one note or whatever, you know, sure. and of course I don't remember it. No. But this is, this is all hearsay. So I learned in a natural progression a natural way um which i think is is the best way realizing that not everybody learned like me um which means i can't teach you the way i learned no but i do realize the power of nature Whenever we start to find, feel like we're wound up a little too tight, what do we do? We go outdoors. We go to the beach. We go to a trail. We ride a bike outside. We go to the mountains. Something with nature. We know what nature does. So mm -hmm. my music camps are in nature. Because, and people tell me, man, as soon as I got off the shuttle, I felt different. Of yes. course you do. Yeah. And then we live there for three to seven days, immersed in it, right? But as uh, I found teachers that are also very interested in you, they are more invested in you as a student than they are in, at, in themselves as a teacher. Our camps are not about us, they're about you. And our goal is to provide the environment for you to rediscover you whether you become a better musician or, or not, it's about who you are as a person. That, you know, 
Yeah. That is fascinating. Um, we're already coming to the end of the third section here, but um, that piece right there, I mean, that's a whole program in and of itself. The investment in the student rather than the teacher, mm-hmm. um, the idea of natural versus um, the methodology or, or the egoic driven methodology and the idea, I mean, I had a conversation with somebody recently on one of my shows who is an educator and I, you know, we had talked about how education has been falling apart for a very long time um, because it was designed as the, the Prussian schooling system, which was designed for the industrial age, which was adopted by the rest of the world. Um, which was really to get people to do what they wanted them to do. And that's been falling apart really since the beginning of the internet and entrepreneurial behaviors, et cetera. COVID-19 and the pandemic uh, and kids being schooled at home has made people realize and value teachers. That's a good thing. But it's also really highlighted how poor the schooling system is. And particularly, I'm sorry if I'm going to offend anybody here, but I'm not sorry. In the the American schooling system is atrocious, generally speaking, is atrocious. Unless you have a ton of money to send your kids to a private school like you do for medical. So in an ideal world, Victor, what would the education system be? Um. The first answer is, I don't know. I'm asking you to design it. Right. Uh, I don't have the answers, but it would have to start with focusing on the student. Yeah. Right. Making it less about us. And here's what I would do. I would look at how we all learn to speak Mm. and start there as our model. How can we use that as a model? We can't use it in school verbatim but what can we take from it? And that's what I've used for my music curriculum. And what I've realized is that some of the things I pointed out, you always feel free when you're learning to speak. And you feel free because no one's telling you that you're wrong over and over. Whenever you start anything, you're gonna mess up more than you get it right. Yes. And if you hear that you're wrong every time you mess up, you're gonna quit. You're going to lose the love. You're going to start feeling self-conscious. And if you continue, you won't be continuing for the right reasons. You will be continuing not because you love this thing that got you there in the first place. You'll be continuing not to be wrong in front of people. Right. The driver is, I don't want to be wrong. Right. So I've got to do this right. Yes. Versus I'm having fun or I'm enjoying this and I'm learning in the process. Right. That, That is... Like that right there is a philosophy of learning that I can fully get behind. I, I think yeah. that's amazing. We, so we got to take a... Yeah, how take, we do it, I don't know. You know. Yeah, well, we can explore that a little bit. I got to take another break. Uh, and then we're going to come back for, for part four of this amazing interview with Victor Wooten. We'll see you on the other side. <laughs> 